Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Welcome everyone to our Wednesday night equip service. Tonight we are embarking on a new journey, a journey that I have enjoyed preparing for. Tonight we are starting a five-week series on the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's, uh, I'm titling it, Understanding the Beauty and Mystery of the Trinity. So this is week one of five. I will be teaching every Wednesday this month. Um, and no surprise, I do have notes. So thank you guys for coming out. I know it is a sometimes a challenge to come here after work and after kind of midweek, um, but I do acknowledge the sacrifice and I thank you for coming. I want to make uh, this time worthwhile for all of us and I believe that um, the content of this class will uh, legitimately equip you in your faith. That is the aim. Anytime I come uh, to, to teach Wednesdays, that's my heart. I want to take the deep things of, of the Lord, things I've learned at, at Bible college and the core realities of our faith and break them down in a way that is understandable and receivable by all, no matter what your intellectual capacity, what your history is in or outside of Christian education. I want to break it down and make it applicable to all of us. Um, so tonight I'm going to be focusing on um, an introduction to the Trinity and its biblical foundation. And this will end up being uh, probably part one of two. Um, as I was preparing the notes, by the time I got to page 11, I was like, okay, this isn't going to fit into one class. So we're going to do part one and part two on the biblical foundation for the Trinity. And then we will be diving into uh, the Council of Nicaea. It won't only be on that, but it will be on um, the general topic of defending the doctrine of the Trinity against heresy, some of the uh, questions that uh, people have about the Trinity. Some of that will be addressed in week three. And then week four, we're going to be talking about the Trinity and the gospel specifically. And then week five, the Trinity and our relationship to, with God. So really the, the thrust of this series will hit its peak at week four and five. So everything prior to week four and five is really laying the foundation to like, why do we even, why are we even talking about this? Is the topic of the Trinity something that should only be cared about or debated at, at seminaries? Or is it something that is deeply practical to our walk with God? I believe the reality of, the tr of God's identity as a triune God is deeply applicable to our present walk with God, regardless of, you know, how academic you want to be in your faith. So, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to God to gather with your word and around, God, the topic of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless our time together, God, that you would make it clear. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, you would open our hearts, God, to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? I'm going to read a few quotes um, just to kind of whet our appetite and give us a sense for what is this thing that we're talking about. I obviously had to just take a sampling of quotes. I could have found thousands of quotes on the Trinity from every possible sector of the body of Christ, from, from Catholic to Protestant to Eastern Orthodox to um, revivalist theologians, systematic you know, theologians, seminary professors. Um, th th this, this is a very important uh, doctrine in Christianity. So we'll start with the, uh, the first quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, The doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the famous pastors. He pastored 30 years in the famous church, Westminster Chapel in London. Um, so he's written many, many books. He's not presently alive. So in the quote number two, it says, No doctrine is more fundamental to the faith than the Trinity. Dr. Norman Geisler, he's a Christian apologist and author of Systematic Theology. No doctrine is more fundamental to the faith than the Trinity. And third quote, it says, The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. To study the Bible's teachings on the Trinity gives us great insight into the question that is at the center of all our seeking after God. What is God like in himself? Here we learn that in himself, in his very being, God exists in the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet he is one God. And that is by Wayne Grudem. He is a scholar, a theologian, a seminary professor, and a prolific, prolific author. He also says, the word Trinity is never found in the Bible. Though the idea represented by the word is taught in many places, the word Trinity means tri-unity or three-in-oneness. It is used to summarize the teaching of Scripture that God is three persons yet one God. And then the, the last quote for now um, is by uh, Dr. Sean McDowell, and he says, Orthodox, Protestant, and Catholic all embrace the Trinity. Although within orthodoxy, there's a different understanding of the relationship and dynamic within the Trinity, but it's considered an essential doctrine by all three. So here, Dr. Sean McDowell, he is, uh, he is an apologetics professor at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And here he's saying that the doctrine of the Trinity is very, very, very different than, let's say, end times theology, right? There could be four or five plus different views on end times theology, and every different sector of the body of Christ has a different opinion on how the end of the world will unfold, how the transition of Jesus coming back to earth, when, when are people raptured or not, you know, how much wrath is poured out upon which group of people, and what is, how do we interpret the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Across the body of Christ, you take a doctrine like that or, a, or, a, or a, a set of beliefs like end times theology and you're going to get a very wide spectrum of belief. That is not so with the Trinity. The Trinity is 
universally believed across Protestant, Catholic, and, uh, and um, Orthodox across all of those sectors. So let's get a sense for what that means. That means that Presbyterian, Anglican, Assyrian, Methodist, Moravian, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Baptist, Ethiopian Orthodox, Congregationalist, Arminian Orthodox, Holiness, Lutheran, Coptic, Dutch Reformed, and Pentecostal churches all universally believe in the Trinity. And you could take any one of those, take Pentecostalism, for example. There's dozens of denominations under just that one major heading. So the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that every denomination has a different spin on what it is or what it means. The doctrine of the Trinity, as stated through the various quotes I gave, it is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. Now you could be hearing that and not know, you know, like maybe you've never heard that statement before. How many of you have heard that before? That the Trinity is that important to the faith. So this is my personal passion to take, to take the, the things that are deeply held to be true from all of Christianity going back, you know, all the way to the beginning to really to, to, to take those things and to translate them from the world of academics into our world. Because there's so much. I mean, th th there are more books, articles, uh, quotes on the doctrine of the Trinity than you could ever dream of. And yet it's easy to grow up in our Christian faith, and we've heard the term Trinity, but maybe we don't fully understand, like, what, what is that? Like, what does that mean, and where, where does it come from, and what, what are the implications? So first of all, defining the Trinity under F, it's built upon these three foundations. Foundation of number one, there is one God. Correct? There's one God. Monotheism is the technical term. We believe in one God. Foundation number two, there are three divine persons within the one being of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three divine persons within the one being of God. Foundation number three, the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So every error or heresy related to the Trinity inevitably, inevitably will deny one of those foundational truths. So if there is a group of people denying the Trinity, they, they, they have to, by, by nature, disagree with one of those realities. They're either disagreeing with monotheism or they're disagreeing that there's distinction between the Trinity, divine persons, or they're disagreeing that the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So we will get more into that in a uh, subsequent class. So I'm going to take a brief second and talk about the reality of the Protestant Reformation and how this impacts this class. So the importance of tota scriptura. Now I am speaking Latin. How many of you speak Latin? I do not. So tota scriptura. 
During the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther and other key church leaders were fighting for the purity of belief and doctrine in light of the corruption of the Catholic Church, there came to the forefront these five solas that summarized the core beliefs that separated Protestantism from the Catholic Church. So how many of you have heard of Martin Luther? So I recently read his biography by Eric McTaxis. It was a very large book, but it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The levels of corruption that were in the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation was off the chain. I mean, I could spend a whole class on that. Super interesting, but I don't have time. But so in this, in this time when Martin Luther was fighting for the faith, the purity of the faith, fighting to say that, that what this says is the most important and that the Catholic Church shouldn't, have, uh, shouldn't be the only place where you can get this, right? So the time of the Reformation was the time when the Bible... Martin Luther uh, translated the Bible into German, and this was the time when they were saying the Bible should be available to all. It should be readable by all because he believed that the Bible should be understood by all. In other words, you don't have to go through not just the beliefs of the Catholic Church, but, but through the tradition of the Catholic Church that's tacked onto the Bible. You don't have to go through that in order to find God. So within this battle over um, the, the, the purity of the Scripture, these five solas of the Reformation came to the forefront. So you may or may not have heard of these, but I'm going to give them to you. Uh, the first is sola scriptura. Have you heard that? That's probably the most famous of the five. That, that, that just simply in Latin, it means Scripture alone. Sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Christus, solus Christus, it means Christ alone. Sola Fide means faith alone. Sola Gratia means grace alone. And Sola Dio Gloria means glory to God alone. So if you were to say that in a statement, you've hopefully heard this, that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone to the glory of God alone. How many of you have heard something to that effect? We are saved by faith through grace in Christ alone, right? That, 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 that little bit of essence has found its way into the broad body of Christ. So during this time of Reformation, there was also the phrase tota scriptura, which was also being used, and that means all of Scripture or Scripture in totality. So... The, the Catholic Church said that, um, that we needed the Bible and church tradition in order to have the entire message of God, in essence. So the Catholics believed the Bible plus, the Bible plus tradition, plus all of the traditions of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther was saying, we just need the Bible. So within that proclamation, he's saying, not just Scripture alone, but tota scriptura, meaning all of scripture. So, in, and that is a key point when we're talking about studying the scripture. We're talking about pursuing understanding of doctrine. We're not, because you can get hung up on taking a single verse and running with it. 
at the formation of every historic heresy was somebody taking their own rogue idea of who God was or what the scripture said and taking it out of context, overemphasizing it often, not balancing it with all of scripture, not looking at the full spectrum of the Bible to say, how does this interact with the rest of what scripture says? And they would run with it. And that's where we get all of the historic and modern heresies. So tota scriptura is super important, this principle that we have to use all of scripture. So the verse that came to mind um, when, when looking at this is 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So all of Scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. So we have to look at the whole of Scripture in order to get a right understanding of anything, from salvation to justification to who is God to you know, why did He come, etc. We have to be able to, to, to look at the whole of Scripture to be able to understand it. And here at the end it says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So if we lack this reality of all of Scripture, we end up lacking adequacy. We end up lacking the equipping for every good work, right? Because here it says we need all of Scripture. We need the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the training. We need all of it in order to be equipped. So this is relevant to the topic of the Trinity because if we can find in Scripture clear teaching that each of the affirmations of the Trinity are true, then to uh, each of the affirmations of the Trinity, then uh, to the, de- uh, I don't know what I said there, uh, with all of Scripture is to, re- um, oh, sorry, then to agree with all of Scripture is to receive and affirm the doctrine of the Trinity to be true. In other words, if the affirmations of the Trinity can be proven, and I believe that all of Scripture is to be held in account, then I would have to, by default, say the doctrine of the Trinity is true, correct? If, if, if the premises can be proven true, then the, then, then the total statement is also true. So false religions, cults, and heresies, they're often birthed, as I said, out of taking parts of Scripture out of context, misinterpreting them, and especially in light of all of Scripture, and overemphasizing them over other parts of Scripture. So any faithful doctrine takes into account the testimony of all of Scripture and rightly weighs each affirmation of Scripture in context and weighs them against all other revealed truth. So we fundamentally believe that all of Scripture is in harmony and that the Scripture does not contradict itself. Can we agree on that? The Scripture is in harmony, and it does not contradict itself. That means that each truth about God's identity needs to fit into one cohesive whole. So if we emphasize one truth and deny another, we end up not upholding the whole of Scripture. So if I affirm that God is love, but he doesn't have wrath, then I am overemphasizing and upholding one part of Scripture while denying another, right? 
If I, if I say God is holy, but yet he endorses sin, then there would be a contradiction. So in order for us to be complete in our belief system, we have to affirm all of what Scripture is teaching. So in other words, if we can see for ourselves that yes, the Scriptures teach that there is one God, and if we can see for ourselves that the Scriptures teach that the Father is God, and the Scriptures teach that Jesus is God, and the Scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit is God, and if we see evidence from the Scriptures that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact and each possess characteristics of personhood, and lastly, if we understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not part God, but each fully God, then there is no other reasonable response but to say that we believe in the Trinity. So that is the thrust of this class. It, we are going to explore, we are going to search the scriptures and see, are those statements about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are they true? When I make the claim that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, can I prove it? Sure. Uh, we will get into that um, this is a stumbling block related to the Trinity. Uh, so God is many things, right? The Bible says that um, just by nature, God is he's uncreated. He's on, on some level un, unknowable. He's, he's, um, he's beyond our comprehension, incomprehensible, immutable. He's all of these things that are on some level beyond us, right? God is not us. He's not human. I mean, Jesus took on human, he, he took on a, a human frame, but he is not, God is not in, in essence a man like us. So when, so when we say that God, that the Godhead possesses personhood, we're talking about attributes of what we would describe as as what makes us not an ape or not a chair, right? So we, the, the, there, are, there are elements of us that, because the, the problem is we can't just take humanity and project that back on God. The limitations of humanity is what I mean. The limitations of me, I can't take that and project it back on God. He is incomprehensible. He is... He is, he's beyond us. So even, even our words, we, we stumble in our words when we try to talk about who God is because he's bigger. He's bigger than, than, our, uh, than the English language. He's bigger than the Hebrew language. He's bigger, he's bigger than all of it, right? So it's, it, it can be, we, we mistakenly take the limitations of our humanity, and we use that as a grid to then say God can't be, he can't be three in one. He can't be triune because, because, that, because there's no picture of that on earth. Does that make sense? He, he, correct, God defies our logic. He defies our understanding. But on the, on the other side of the coin, God in his love is choosing to reveal himself to us. So we, we can understand God to the degree that he chooses to self-reveal himself. So the limitations of our understanding are, 
dynamically connected to the degree to which the, the supreme God of the universe chooses to reveal himself. So we, we will talk more about personhood later. Um, so uh, that leads us right into Roman numeral four, the stumbling block of mystery. So some persons who reject all they cannot explain have denied that God is a trinity. Subjecting the Most High to their cold, level-eyed scrutiny, they conclude that it's impossible that he could be both one and three. These forget that their whole life is enshrouded in mystery. They fail to consider that any real explanation of even the simplest phenomenon in nature lies hidden in obscurity and can no more be explained than can the mystery of the Godhead. Each man lives by faith, the non-believer as well as the saint, the one by faith in natural laws, the other by faith in God. Every man throughout his entire life constantly accepts without understanding. So the mystery of the Godhead. That is what we're talking about, the mystery of the Trinity. Who is God in essence? Who is he? Who is he revealed himself to be? So the second, and, that, and that's a quote by A.W. Tozer. How many of you have heard that name? A.W. Tozer, famous author. He, he wrote among many, many books. This is just a very tiny, easy read, Knowledge of the Holy. How many of you have heard of this book? You could probably find it on Amazon for less than $10. It is a ridiculously, it's an easy read. It is not, uh, it's, anyone can read it. Um, and it goes through uh, basically the attributes of God. And he has one chapter on the Trinity. Um, highly recommend it. Like if we want to understand our faith, then reading things like this, super approachable. I mean, there's nobody that couldn't read a 100-page book and, you know, again, an easy read. Um, so a, a second quote by Henry, he says, Some deny that the Scriptures teach the Trinity of the Godhead on the ground that the whole idea of the Trinity and unity is a contradiction in terms. But since we cannot understand the fall of a leaf by the roadside or the hatching of a robin's egg in the nest, why should the Trinity be a problem to us? In other words, everything in life goes beyond the scope of our understanding. Even what you believe to know in your field of work, in your field of study, in what you, the classes you took in college, even those, if you really look at them, we understand everything in part. We don't really know. I mean, we can explain the effect of something, I can explain that, you know, the grass needs water and sunlight. But the, the deeper you go, you end with questions. We are simply believing by faith that those things are, we don't understand their existence in, in, the, in its most fundamental form. So when we're talking about the Godhead, how much more is that true? We can only understand him again to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. So my aim then is to look at everything God said about who he is and be quick to say yes, amen. Is right to, to humbly submit myself to all of the truth claims of Scripture 
related to who he is, what he has done, what is his essence, and say yes. So there is only one God. This is the foundational truth of Trinitarian doctrine. There are three main monotheistic religions in the earth. Anybody know what they are? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Every, but generally speaking, every other religion on the earth, I'm sure there's a few outliers, but all the other religions are not monotheistic, meaning they believe in many gods. They are polytheistic religions. So monotheism, Christianity, is a monotheistic religion. And at the core of that are verses like Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's probably one of the most famous verses related to the oneness of God. And why is it one of the most famous? It is the Jewish Shema. This is what they quote multiple times a day. They're declaring that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So 1 Kings 8.60, uh, it says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. And then we see in Isaiah 45.5-6, through 6, it says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then continuing on later in Isaiah 45, verse 21 through 22, it says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So we are absolutely dependent. If we are to know God, we are dependent upon the scriptures to tell us who he is, what, is, what he is like. And it's verses like these. There is no God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. Amen. So we know God is righteous, and we know He saves. And there is none except me. So the question is, does the New Testament continue in its belief that God is one? The New Testament, yes, it continues to affirm the oneness of God. Even Jesus himself quotes the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. He quotes it in Mark 12.29. So page four, it says, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So Jesus is reaffirming the, tru the truth that God is one. So 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, it says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So again, the beginning of that verse affirms there is one God. Romans 3.30, Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? And then James 2.19, You believe, 
that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So that is not a comprehensive list, but we see Old Testament says over and over again, God is one, God is one, God is one. New Testament, again, Jesus himself saying, yes, God is one. So here is where the reality of the Trinity, we begin to, to put the puzzle pieces together. How many of you would say that God is Father and that he is fully God? So we know from Scripture that God reveals himself to be, he's called Father, and it's undeniable. But I don't just want to jump over this. How many of you know that's really good news? So this isn't just an academic exercise. Seeing the testimony of Scripture declare that the supreme God of the universe is a Father is beyond good news. Think about that for a second. The supreme God of the universe calls himself a Father. This revelation is made alive in our hearts through the sending of Jesus the Son to die to atone for our sins and bring us into fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God into our hearts. And this is the core of what it means to be a Christian and to have fellowship with God. So we can have fellowship with God precisely because he is a father and he wants relationship. We will talk about that a lot more in session four and five. But that is really good news, that God is a father. So I will talk more about this also in a future session, but how many of you know in Islam, it specifically says, even right on the Dome of the Rock, at the Temple Mount, it says, God is not a father and does not have a son. Talk about an assault against the reality and the revelation of who God is. Islam says God is not a father and does not have a son. And basically the, the, the statement is he's too good to have a, um, uh, a prostitute, basically, is the, is the, the sense of, of what Islam says. That, that God is too good to have a female lover. And therefore... God isn't a father and can't have a son. That, that's a, a, a belief of Islam. So, Isaiah 64, 8. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. In Malachi 2, 10, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal, we deal treacherously each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers. Interesting here, and again, I'll probably touch on this more in a future session, but here there's a connection between the reality that God is a father and then the call for us not to deal treacherously one to another. The foundation, the call for us to behave in love and servanthood with one another is founded in the doctrine of the Trinity. It's founded in the reality that God is a father who has a son and, and, and the Holy Spirit as well. So the reality of that fellowship between the Trinity is the foundation for the call for, for us to behave rightly with each other. So Luke 10, 21 through 22, it says, At that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, talking about Jesus, 
And it says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the focus here, what we're going to see is each of these verses that I say, they'll have multiple statements that could be drawn out of them to show the Trinity, show interaction between the Trinity, show the distinction and personhood between the Trinity. Uh, But for the sake of categorizing these, I will try to stick to uh, the main focus. So here we're talking about God is a father and he's fully God. So here again, Jesus is praying to the father and he is calling him father, Lord of heaven and earth. So and then 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. All right. So Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be, God, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, he- in the heavenly places in Christ. So again, we see this reality that God is a father. So now we will um, briefly touch on God the Son is fully God. How many of you believe Jesus is not just a man, but he's fully God? How many of you took my the the deity of Jesus class? Um, So the truth of Jesus' deity can be easily shown across a plethora of verses. So This truth, I spent five weeks um, talking about it and the deity of Christ, and I didn't even include all of the relevant verses on Jesus' deity because they didn't fit in that class of five weeks. So just a very brief overview. One of the reasons why we know that Jesus is God, he shares the honors that are due only to God. So Jesus was worshiped, he was prayed to, he is, we, were called, we are called to obey him, correct? And these are realities that only the God of Abraham was supposed to be able to receive. In other words, we are not, we're, not, we're not supposed to worship any other angel or human being or prophet, but Jesus received worship, for example. So Jesus also shares the attributes of God that only God can possess. The attributes of God that only God can possess. So the incommunicable attributes, the attributes that I as a human, I cannot, I cannot be all-powerful, I cannot be all-knowing, I cannot be, you know, many other things related to God. I, I just, I can't. There's no amount of perfection or effort that I can do or be to, to be like God in those ways. And yet Jesus, verse after verse after verse, possessed those same attributes that only God can possess. So Jesus also shares the names of God including his covenant name, Yahweh. So over and over again throughout the New Testament, Jesus is associated directly with the term Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. So Jesus also does the same deeds that only God can do. So there's verses that talk about Jesus creating. 
There are verses that talk about Jesus forgiving sin. There are verses that talk about Jesus upholding all of creation, all of which only God can do. No man, no prophet can do that. So then also Jesus sits on the same throne that God sits upon. Again, there's verses to back that up. Um, so here is a small sampling of specific verses pointing to Jesus' divinity. So John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. We know that this term, the Word, is speaking of Jesus. The Word was God. So Jesus' divinity, that is one of the most prominent verses that, that um, many will go to when talking about Jesus' de deity. So John 20, 26 through 28 says, After eight days his disciples were again inside. Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to Jesus, said to him, my Lord and my God. And he was not rebuked for it. So here Thomas, after the resurrection, Jesus is coming to reveal himself, show himself to the disciples. And Thomas makes this bold declaration, my Lord and my God. So Titus 2, 13 through 14 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here is, here is this declaration. We are looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So if you ever hear someone say, where in the Bible does, does it say that Jesus is God? There are dozens upon dozens of verses that can lay this out. But often if, if someone is angrily saying that, they probably don't want to hear one of them. So then Romans 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and, and, fr and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. It doesn't say he's a little God over a little. It says he is God over all. In other words, he's supreme. He is preeminent. He is, he is full. He is full. It's not, it, um, there are various heresies that say like Jesus is not really God. He's not fully God. He was like kind of half God, like this pseudo half human, half God. And that is... Um, undoubtedly false. Isaiah 9, 6, it says, for, for, speaking of uh, the coming of Jesus, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Colossians 2, 9 through 10, says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head over all rule and authority. So again, I could spend, you know, five to ten hours just on the deity of Christ, 
But here we just want to point to some of those prominent verses to say that the New Testament affirms without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was God. And then we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also fully God. The scriptures declare that the Holy Spirit is eternal, that the Holy Spirit creates, that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, that the Holy Spirit is called the Almighty. The Holy Spirit also inspired the scriptures, and he is, in fact, called God. So I will go over a few of these uh, to end this class. So God the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here he's called the eternal Spirit. That's important to know. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit is not simply a force. The Holy Spirit is not simply a manifested power. The Holy Spirit is eternal. So Acts 5, 3 through 4. Peter said, this is a really good story of Ananias. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Are, are you seeing what I'm saying? It says he's lying to the Holy Spirit, and then at the end he's saying, you didn't just lie to man, but you lied to God. So there's an undeniable connection between the statement, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, and then the statement, you're lying to God. And then Romans 8, 9, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here we see, again, this interchange of language. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. So the Spirit of God. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, it says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. When God reveals something, the Spirit is revealing something, because it is the Spirit of God. So we don't have time today, but in the next class we will be talking about the personhood of the Holy Spirit at more depth. Because the, the, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, if you've never been taught the, the specific dynamics of the Holy Spirit, you might wrongly assume that the Holy Spirit is like less than God, or the Holy Spirit is just the manifestation of the power of God, or the Holy Spirit is just like the feeling of God, um, but not truly God. 
So we will get into that um, more specifically, the distinction and the personhood of the Holy Spirit in next class. But here I just want to point you to various verses that talk about the Holy Spirit as God. So here in Job 33.4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God has made me, so the Holy Spirit is participating in creation. Obviously, we know Genesis 1, you know, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, so the Holy Spirit was not only present, but active in the reality of creation. And here we see the Spirit of God has made me. So God, the Holy Spirit, is active in creation. It says the breath of the Almighty. If, you, if, if you're not looking for this, you know, the, normally you would associate the term the Almighty, just naturally you would associate with that with the Father. Well, the Father is the Almighty. But here we see that the Holy Spirit is called the Almighty. So again, the Holy Spirit is God. That is really the beginning of talking about the Trinity. Because now, you're looking at the evidence that God is one, and then you're looking at the evidence the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Where do we go from here? Is there a contradiction? How do we make sense of all these statements? Because the some would say, to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, some would say, well, then you believe in three gods, right? The, the, the Muslims laugh at Christians because they don't understand the Trinity, and they say, well, you believe in three gods. But that's where we, that's where we will start next week, is talking about this at more depth that I can't keep going now. Um, so does that make sense? We're just laying the foundation. So we, we, we believe the Father's God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and we also believe in Jew, Jewish monotheism. Jesus himself is like, the Lord our God is one. So either we believe there's contradiction, or we have to make sense of all of the parts and say, how does it work? And the term Trinity is just a summary statement to say that we affirm all of them. Like that, that's really what it means. Because you can take dozens of theological terms. We, I mean, you, you believe God is omniscient, yes? Some of you are like, what's omniscience? Right? But, but we know God knows everything. We know that God is all-powerful. But the term omniscient isn't in the Bible. So there's tons of, there are dozens of theological terms that we use to summarize in one word what we believe and then there's dozens of verses that back up that belief system when you get into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, but the summary statement itself is not a quote-unquote term that you'll find in the Bible. So that, that I mean, that is the one of the number one um, questions about the Trinity is like, well, the Trinity, you can't show me where in the Bible it says the word Trinity. Show me in the Bible where it says God is omniscient. And yet you believe it. Right? So, um, we will continue next week. So, does anyone have a question that I can answer in 60 seconds or less? So, Jacob is asking a question about prayer and the Trinity. It's a good question. If the God is triune, how do we pray? Do we pray to the Father? Do we pray to the Son? Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? 
if you are exclusively talking about verses that you can find in the Bible, the biblical model for prayer is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the Holy Spirit. Like that is the most true to the text way that you would pray. Now we also believe that God is one. So am I ever going to tell you that it's wrong to say, come Holy Spirit? Or to say, Jesus, I need you. Or to say, Father, help. Are those messages going to three different gods? Or is that message going to one God who is one in essence, one in being, and yet three in person? That is the mystery of the Trinity. God is one in essence. He is one in, in the, the substance. Like, what is God? God is one. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's the clearest way to say it. The what of God is the essence. God is one in being. He's one in essence. He's one in the substance of what makes God, the godness of God. The godness of God, you could say that. So the Jesus is God in fullness. The, the right says the fullness of deity he is, dwells in him. So the fullness. Jesus isn't one-third God. He's not part of, a God, of God. He is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is the Almighty. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And then we have the, God the Father who also creates and saves. And we have Jesus saving and creating. So we'll get into this later. But all of these different things from creation to redemption to sustaining of, of, of creation, the, the, the entire Trinity participates in all of them. And we'll, we'll dive into that much deeper as we go. Does that make sense? Beginning to make sense? Um, so I will, I will end it just by, just by uh, sharing a little bit about... Um, I, have, I have looked into a ridiculous number of resources in preparation for this class. Uh, one of which is a book by James White called The Forgotten Trinity. Um, excellent book. This is very thorough, talking about the deity of Christ, breaking that down, talking about the Trinity. Um, this one pertains more to the last session or two, talking about the Trinity and the Gospel and how and the, the practical implication of the Trinity, relationship with the Trinity. This is an amazing book. Absolutely. Easy to read. This is called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Super easy to read. This is like Knowledge of the Holy. Easy, easy read. And yet, th th this is a book that makes your heart come alive regarding the topic of the Trinity. Um, I won't quote a lot from it until we get to the latter sessions, just to make things fit. Um, all right. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to look at who you are, who you've declared yourself to be. So, Lord, we pray, God, that you would continue to unfold it to us. Lord, you'd make it clear. Reveal yourself to us, God. That is our aim, Lord. We want to encounter you in our heart, not just in mind. Lord, we pray that you would be with us. God, that you would show yourself to us. God, you would strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.